Deep Americana. I'll be interviewing Ken Bo about his art. And reality. So with that, Ken, um would would you uh, elaborate a bit on your experimental art? I know you use some encaustics and some oils. Like what? Well, is... Hi there, Ray. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Well, I appreciate being on your your gig here. Yeah, I use this term experimental artist and um, or painter. Probably the same for my poetry. It's it's my nature. To me, it's the era we live in. But. Uh, with the uh, painting, I um, I guess it starts with my feeling that technique is what creates all style, uh, you know, ideas. This is what motivates me. So I'm always trying to. It's just what I want to do: develop different techniques and materials that I can use. Uh, from one idea to the next and just keep jamming those out and both intellectually and improvisationally left brain right brain all of it and you know just dancing along drum soloing along you know and uh so i do work with waxes and uh, i work with tree resins and oils those are all oleesters i love that kind of alchemy right um, I find experimental surfaces to paint those things on. It's quite often, uh, you know, it's somewhat formal, painting on a square or a rectangle, but canvas or panel quite a bit. Different plasters that I might put on there with different effects that I can then do the encaustic on and then the oil. Uh, to a certain extent, I like to resist the term encaustic because it's it's become a commercial art supply term, um, and which has developed, I think, techniques and uh, art supplies that define it. Right. And you know, I'm interested in the term idiom, which. In general usage, might refer to figures of speech or even cliche, but in the arts, uh, you kind of develop your own idiom, or a genre may have its idiom, or a, you know, like pop art may be kind of an idiom, or a certain pop artist that has their own idiom. You know? Right, and kind of like pockets. By silk screen or whatever. But right. The uh, so going back to what I'm doing. Um, I'm always trying to break idioms at the same time, you know, you end up developing your own idiom and um, the specific introduction of the next idea is pulling it forward. So I'll have a, I don't always sketch images. I do so in terms to kind of outline things. I'll often sketch by writing a list 
Right. And so I'm putting forth these ideas, but then when I do it, you know, it's gonna that jam session's gonna happen as it happens as I keep pulling in all my tools, you know. Right, that's that's often that's kind of how a lot of my process will start too, is I'll get an idea, I'll jot it down, and then I will either start uh, sketching some things or I'll start just looking up different images of those I- types of ideas on you know a Google search engine or something like that and then as you say have a jam session with it you know and different you know I probably have like 20 different series of works because mm-hmm. all these techniques that you find yourself inventing or you discover something some historical technique and then you bring it back into your into your own uh, hybrid of techniques and materials and and ultimately these different styles or series that come out of them and and so you know there, there will be a little bifurcation you know because you come you, do, you have a new discovery and it breaks off of what it came out of and uh and so each of these different series will really ultimately have its own set of parameters so that one series is suddenly demanding me to do representational techniques that maybe I resisted, you know, for a while, uh, but, you know, learned in art school or whatever, but the, you know, so then, then you know, then that... Now I'm not going to maybe write a list the same way I did. I'm going to do formal sketches or something. Right. And I'm going to get, and I'm going to rebel against that and bring something else into it, you know, and on it goes. So, um, but I ultimately I'd like to hybrid then back all those different techniques and series back into one master series. And, and that's when I'll know I've grown up. <laughs> right. And maybe at that point, I'm not quite an experimental artist, but I've, I've finally developed one master style after 40 years of, of all these different techniques and whatnot. Let's say, you know, in that vein, if we go back and we look at someone like Jackson Pollock, right, that was highly experimental at that point, and now that is a master technique, you know. So yeah. Right, but he, he went through a lot of different permutations oh, before yeah. that. Oh, yeah. A lot of interesting art before that, you know. Yeah, didn't um, he? He had some pretty representational painting before that. Well, if you go back, you know, far enough. Yeah. But I kind of like where he was between the total action painting and the representational painting. You know, it was that kind of semi-abstraction where there right. were more, uh, more forms that were ambiguous but you could you know at least subliminally latch on to and, and, and that kind of thing it could be a whole other conversation here you know oh, yeah. how we appreciate art unconsciously which I think is a big utility to art um, and probably why I do what I do well I, I think on that note I think it is a huge utility to art and I think that you know, we can actually cause change with art, especially with subliminal things as well, you know. Um, it's just like some of the stuff I work on as of late, I brought, you know, my stuff was akin mainly to an illustration. And these last few types of pieces I've done, I've really broke it down to where it's almost childlike, some of it, right? And the, uh, 
the application of, of the of the paint. So instead of having a detailed car, I'll have just that form, and then a detailed tire to the car, or something of that nature. Um, right. That's you know uh, that's important. You know because a representational image can you know can take two directions in how you go about it. Initially, you can you can do a drawing of something in nature where you're just responding to light and dark. You're not trying to draw the thing itself. Right. You're not trying to draw the idea of the thing itself or paint the idea of the thing itself. That's a cartoon or a caricature. Right. Or or, or a flat-out symbol. Whereas a real properly uh, oil or realism or what have you, you're just responding to light and dark. And that's a wonderful meditation to engage in. But then, not believing in dualities, and that's a whole other discussion we can have, or always wanting to challenge them at least, I think it's fun to have a little of both. You know, like, as, almost in the way that light hits an object, so could the symbol hit the object and, and then just the light and dark of the object. Right, know, well, one but, image. And I, I see you doing that a little bit. And it's, of course, play brings up a lot of more important issues too, uh, you know, because we all play as children. And I don't think we ever stop doing that. It just becomes formalized in the habits of adult culture in other ways. I do. And on that note, I honestly think that we need to bring back that curiosity, that childlike yeah. curiosity. I think that's very much what we're missing in our reality today we are not curious you know if like me you know i'm highly interested in other cultures you know um and learning about things and i feel like in today's culture we've lost that yeah it's weird you know i mean i realize this things can become kind of taboo in ways we don't always appreciate we we lose sight of it you know, children uh, play, but in adolescence, their hormones destroy a lot of neurons and different things are going on, and we're thrown into sexuality, and we forget a lot of what that, the intelligence and imagination, that the cradle of our adult existence and intelligence and imagination, where it all began there. And uh, yeah, it's worth thinking about and playing around with getting back to that. Yeah, I think... Um, at least so, for the sake of your own balance. Right. As a person. So, so, let's shift gears a bit here. Um, and I want to ask you, so, how, how do we get people to be interested in each other? You know, and I'll say, one of the things I think on why people get so rooted... And, and isms and, and assigning negative connotations to things they don't understand is because they, you know, they don't ever leave where they're from. Most people in America never leave America, you know, to go see another culture. And so I find it to be a financial type of thing and then an excuse. Um, but it's, that, that's to me, that's, that's, that's almost the cure here in, in a way with a lot of what's going on today is actually getting people to engage with each other and be curious enough about these cultures and actually understand what's really, you know, what's really there, you know. 
like to use an analogy yeah. from the appreciation of art that I have. It's kind of a human concept, though it's kind of gone in my own directions, which is I don't believe that we really appreciate any kind of art that we haven't learned about. Okay, that makes and, sense. And how that works is there's, of course, there's formal learning, like reading from a book or going to a lecture, mm-hmm. or and then there's experiential learning, and that's more nebulous. We don't always know where we got it or it's so far back we forget that we got it, and we just assume that we like what we like. And that's it. Right. It's just subjective. We like what we like. And, uh, you know, but I believe there's actually more to it than that. that there's a decision there. Well, there, Whether the decision was made for us or, or how we continue to make that decision. Well, there is Which is, in a, a sense, lot. we're choosing not to like things because we're choosing not to learn about things. Well, and then I'll say, I almost feel like it goes back to a Tool song where the lyrics are like, sever the umbilical cord. A lot of people, I don't think, ever take the time to understand why they see things a certain way. And that goes from art to, to everything, right? It's difficult. It's difficult for most people, you know, who don't get on this train that we're on. Right. Um, you know, they've, they're, not, they're just told to have these common expectations of life and, and to not be concerned with things. I mean, most people, philosophy of art would be the, one of the least important things. But I think in the long run, it may turn out to be almost the only important well, thing. Well, Ken, but that isn't the humanity yeah. where we're at yet. Ken, have, you, have you ever then, look, looked into but, the idea that like during Greek times, art was a science? And what that's about, I have not researched much into that. But. Well, that's a that's a whole big thing because uh, Greece had different times in its own history. Ancient Greece had its own different times, and you know the Platonic right. philosophy. Plato basically thought that he would, and he was a statesman. Okay, he was the elite, and a lot of his writings are supposedly quoting Socrates, and that's another thing. But Plato essentially thought art was fake news, to put it in contemporary terms. Hmm. Because it could only be fake news, because it could never be the truth, or the real form of things. And then you go up to Aristotle, and, and then Aristotle starts actually getting into, well, whatever, these are actually some of the principles of our book of aesthetics, and, and uh, then we start getting into some other stuff. So those are... Those are huge, but, you know, okay, I just generalized in a way that would probably, you know, piss off some philosophers. I say, Plato basically thought art was fake news. That's just the way of communicating it to the contemporary age. But the way that Plato wrote about that, there was a lot of intense stuff. And if if I could make a point, all the philosophers of art, to me, are interesting and useful because art is, you know, it, just like obsolete sciences or obsolete technologies, at least in art, can be useful and interesting. And, and, and just like all art of any kind, whether or not you think it's bad or good, can be interesting, at least in a moment, somewhere in time where you experience it, right. you know, in synchronicity or something. Right. And so, 
Well, we can't get too far into the ancient Greek, uh, because that's a big subject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but if we can remember what we were talking about, they got us there. Um, I, I think it, we were basically we were talking about uh, people's perceptions. Um, yeah, and, and, and they learn, okay, we want to get back to talking about you know learning and loving and having empathy for each other, including right. the other, those others that are you know foreign or alien to us. Right. And uh, but appreciation, uh, you know, going back to that term. It also is a bigger term than just I like or I don't like. Appreciation means maybe you have understanding, you have empathy, you can appreciate that. But it doesn't mean you like it, but you can appreciate it. You know, it's a, you know, it's another culture, you can appreciate it, but only to a limited extent, because you can never really be in that paradigm. Right. Now, when I talk about paradigms, which are models of reality, the theory there is that you can never see outside of your paradigm. You can never really see into another paradigm, except that we can think by analogy, and and that can kind of set up a way of us to understand or appreciate something. So, um, you know, like, so you may study Hinduism or Buddhism or an obscure African tribe or, you know, communism or capitalism or whatever ism. But, you know, you can only put yourself there so far. And, and ultimately, you, well, since we're, we're kind of greedy, we're tended, we're going to want to see how we can bring it back as something that we can use in our experience. You know, but that's okay. I think that's the best we can do. You know, and, and appreciating others is related to analogically through analogies to, you know, something in our own experience. And, uh, but hopefully expand our, own, our paradigms, our, model, our own model of reality, you know. And, and of course, why am I an experimental artist and poet? I want to use that to do those things. Right. Like poetry. I can, just one poem, I, I, you know, I can write 20 poems, it can be about 20 different little things in diff, 20 different cultures where I just get into that thing or maybe I scattershot around there a little bit. In a play or in fiction, those are places where you can really set up that analogy as a kind of temporary model of reality or paradigm. And then in if you want to be Aristotelian, Aristotelian, I can't say it, three acts. If you want to put it into three acts, you can go, you know, a beginning, a middle act, and then the third act, where you explore something in that other culture, in the, in the fiction of the play, and the make-believe of the play, and really have more of an experience of the other as best we can, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's. I think that's key. I think that's a big thing right now. That's that's not happening, and that's why we have these breakdowns of communities. Is that we don't have the app or the uh, empathy. We don't. Right. Have, well, it's it's not trendy, is it? Because no partisan. You know, more partisan than ever. Right. And and even though in our wisdom, what little wisdom we have, we know that has to be a false duality. At least if 
We know there's things like what they call controlled opposition. Right. We know there's have to be things in common, but we get so caught up on the partisan gravy train that we can't let ourselves free of it a lot of the time. And then on social media, get caught up in these either or arguments. You know, we don't we don't want to give any ammunition to the enemy. You know, <laughs> I think that's one of the biggest problems in um, contemporary human rationality is not wanting to give ammunition to the enemy if I could make that into a kind of a trope yeah because, because what happens is whether you're liberal or democrat you don't want to even address or give any semblance of credence any agreement to what might be an object that they have, like dog whistle, or that they're using. Right, know? right, right. You know, like so, like uh, you know, like if uh, you know, like, and, and and that can be real tricky. You know, like whether it's free markets or it's socialism, they become these territories where either side is not allowed to give the other side any uh, leeway, any any territory any and so we miss out on the the grand illusion which is that in truth there's probably never been any capitalism that was that didn't have socialism there's probably never been any socialism that didn't have capitalism and 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 those are not and those economic systems are not sciences right and they're they're full of ideological barbed wire and dog whistle landmines and it's all BS and now I I lean towards agreeing we could have really great social programs right but I also think we need to have dynamic capitalist type things but in a sense I don't think any pure capitalism has ever existed I don't think any pure free markets ever existed I don't think any pure socialism has ever existed and, you know, it was common to say, at least in the Cold War, you know, you know, well, okay, the Soviet Union is, is communist, or some people say socialist. Right. But, of course, you know, it wasn't real communism. They never achieved it, but it was, they were trying to. You know, well, then why not? The, I think the same is true for there was never any true capitalism. It was now certain now, and that's painful for some people to say because on uh, either the left or right, because the capitalism could could be a place that we could assign so much pain and suffering, right? From one point of view, and also so much glory and you know patriotism, you know, or, or whatever other folly from another point of view, right? And uh, it's all a bunch of nonsense and well, the false duality between the two that are just illusions. Yeah, man, but it's... What it's... we really need is to craft, you know, a real art and science of what could never be anything but both those things and a lot more. What, what it is, I, I firmly believe, too, is it's, it's narratives. It's narratives... Yeah. You 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 got you you can go back to MK Ultra. <laughs> you can you can look at like you look at marketing, social media marketing. Look at all of this stuff. We very much understand how to direct traffic and in traffic I mean minds um, and how to divide people to 
to basically be able to rule them. And I don't buy into that it's as much a giant conspiracy. I think that we very much should be able to use capitalism and socialism and infuse those together in, in such a way, which is what we have done for so long. A lot of people don't realize that your police department is socialist, your fire department is socialist, your military socialist, food stamp socialist, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, list could go on, right? And we function fine that way. Um, and I, I think that we could have more programs there. It, and it's yeah, but, and keep in mind also all those government socialist operations also have our public private relationships. They right. They give out. They outsource all kinds of stuff to big companies and hopefully more small local companies. And and uh, I don't know that. You could ever have it both ways, you know. Even in the Soviet Union, they had to have all these small farmers. They tried to do collective farming, but in a sense, you could say that every human being that is a laborer is, in its, in, in his or herself, a small business. Right. Whether even though there's they're, they're just a worker or you know maybe belong to a union, they are in themselves an entrepreneur of their own survival, even. If they're a, a fucking android robot, <laughs> right, right. So, what what do you think about like the the idea of uh, like technocratic governments? Uh, well, I don't know everything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what do you got? You got a technocracy. Like technocracy a, is what I mean. Yes. things from which to understand things 
in a broader context or in different contexts. And, and likewise, you can understand the other better because you have experience with always putting different others together in your practical experience and in your creative experience. You know? So we got to get beyond this. Oh, you should just, there's only enough time to be a specialist. And I realize right. it's tricky to think about because you can take one discipline like biochemistry and there's almost so much knowledge there that you, you, can, you can only be in a, a specialist in a part of biochemistry. There's too much to know to be a specialist just in all biochemistry. But at the same time, though, maybe you need to also not just be a, a specialist in the genome or something, but you need to also know how to play a musical instrument or, or, write, or write poetry or a couple other things and really be good at, but really be a, a master student of those things too, because uh, otherwise, not only is it a failed democracy, you know, it's, 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 it's going you know, to be a failed democracy. It's going to be a failed world culture because we can't, we're just not, we don't know how to do anything but have a narrow focus. Right, that, that, which... That's not seeing the other. Well, right, which focus. is, which is what... And this brings me to a really good point, is the idea of collaboration. And I imagine oh, yeah. you, you've collaborated a lot. I have, too. And once you have that narrow view, you cannot collaborate. You know, the collaboration is another thing, I think, that is lacking in today's culture. Yeah, and I, I got something to say about that, which yeah. is territorialism. Right, right. You know, and I, and I see that in the provincialism. Like in, uh, in, here in Bisbee, Arizona, where I live, which is a cool art town, and there's lots of awesome people here and things going on, and it's a crazy town. It's a great, and we got room for hundreds of more artists to move here, even though it's a small town with all these different landscapes. But at the same time, it gets its own provincialism because people start getting their own territory, you know, and, right. and uh, we've had uh, an artist from LA come here through an artist residency. Her name is Muckrock. She's a well-known LA street artist. And some of the local people, including artists, were attacking her work, bad-mouthing her online, really nasty, uh, getting caught up in that kind of territorialism, I think. And there's a whole lot I could talk about there that we don't need to go into, but I'm against it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, I think that... Uh, this territorialism gets down to the issue of collaboration, which right. is what he brought up. Right. Because of this kind of provincialism that can take over any town. And, but it's not just because we're a small, uh, smaller community here. I, I think you'll find it in the larger art world, you know, where, for instance, so-called difficult artists, you know, artists that have a difficult personality or something, get weeded out of the gallery system because the art dealers don't want to deal with them. It, it, at some rates... That's a kind of provincialism, or <laughs> cancel culture. Right. can be a kind of provincialism, as well as the reason we have cancel culture, which was racism and ethnocentricity. Right. Those are provincialisms also. And in the big picture, anthropomorphism is a kind of provincialism, you know, where we're just a bunch of local yokels and we're getting caught up in our territory. Right. And to bring this point home in my own life, after this podcast recording, 
I've got to go meet my art assistant at the lumber yard. Uh, her name is Candace Schroeder. Okay. Now she's my art assistant. And now in the history of art, we have art assistants. Right. And then we have the artists in this. You know, there's a lot of controversy in contemporary art because, you know, Damien Hurst or whoever may have dozens of art assistants doing can, most of the work and doing, you know, work that the artist can, can make, do. But it all goes under the artist name, trademark, what, what you call it. And there's a territorial to it, territorialism to that. Can I make a point on top of your point here? Uh, yeah, well, just to conclude, I'm, okay. I'm declaring my art assistant a collaborator. Awesome. So well, we're, we're collaborating also, but go on. So, so when you talk about art assistance, that's happened through probably, you know, there's probably someone handing a caveman, you know, some pigment to blow on his hand on a cave wall, which was his art assistant, right? And so my point is that every movie you watch, tons of art assistants in there, right? Any, any publication we pick up, assistants in there. There should not be, to me, anything wrong within that as long as that um, relationship is empowering to that assistant, right? Um, and and I've, I've had, and especially in school, there was a lot of conversation about, well, he doesn't make his own art, like Ed Paschke, if you know who he is. He has a lot of art assistants, too. And people would be like, he didn't make that, someone else made it. It's like, no, but he directed. It's kind of like the writer to the artist in a comic book, if that makes yeah, sense. You're making, we're, we're using analogies from other genres of art where it makes perfect sense. Right, where it's accepted. You know, yeah. Like yeah. a band, and then they have, like in big bands, they had a big band director. So the Lawrence Welk right. big band, you know, before the TV show that people could still see. Right, right, right. He was a big band director, had his name on it. But there was total collaboration going on there. Right. And in a dynamic sense, too, because they were influenced, even though they were segregated often, they were influenced by that that kind of, uh, you know, African-American jazz that invented the kind of improvisation that we really value the most in jazz. And that's a wrap for me and Kim. Please join us for the second part of this episode. And thank you for listening.